be seated. I'm reminded some Sundays that it's just good to worship, isn't it? Makes you feel good. After a long week, you come in here on a Sunday morning, it's just, I don't know, probably a bad word, but a word is just refreshing to lift our voices up to the Lord, to turn our attention to Him, and let everything else just kind of melt away for just a little bit. I always appreciate what Jessica puts together in our worship here at the church on Sunday morning, and it's always anointed, and it's always God-honoring, and I'm grateful for that. So if you would this morning, we're going to think do things just a little bit different, okay? Um, different but the same. This morning, I'm not going to go to a scripture, so to speak. We're going to talk about the book that we always dig into each and every week. For the last couple of weeks in the high school room, we've been going through a series called The Proof, okay? The first week we did, we did a proof that God loves us, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus came from heaven to earth to seek and save that which was lost, came to a cradle, headed to a cross, to an empty tomb, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. So what we taught the high schoolers was, here's what you need to know. You need to know in your heart that these things are true. You need to have confidence in what we believe and what we see in Scripture. Even if we might not fully understand it yet, even if we might not fully be ready to absorb it yet, you need to have confidence that the Bible teaches us these things and that they're accurate and they're true. The second way we looked at, and these have been kind of a little bit deeper sermons for high school students maybe, but that's how we do it in junior high and high school. We teach them the Word. And the second week what we did is we looked at um, it really that Jesus is God. The proof in scripture that shows that Jesus claimed to be God. And we laid all that out before the high schoolers. And I think they, they, they understood it. It seems like they were paying keen attention. And I'm hoping they got that. So this morning, what I would like to do this morning is carry that, stay in that vein of proof, if you will. And the thing I want to look at this morning is how do we know that scripture is true? How do we know that it's trustworthy? I want to look at history. I want to look at a few things. First thing I want to look at is how do we receive scripture? Second thing I want to look at is how do we know scripture's trustworthy and true and accurate? And the third thing that I'll look at, hopefully I'll get through all of this this morning, is to look at how the Bible helps us. I made a comment to my wife yesterday, so this ought to scare you a little bit. I made a comment to Rachel. This is really a three-week study that I'm going to pack into one 30-minute sermon. So are you ready? Normally you're like, whenever you see me walk up here, I'm sure you're like, oh, buckle up. He's back. Because I talk too fast, I get too excited, but I've really been praying that the Lord would help me capture this this morning. Another reason I wanted to kind of lean into this, I think, is this small group study that Tanner's put together that we've got coming up is very important, you guys. Even if you don't understand it, again, it's, it's Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it's on apologetics, okay? Christian apologetics is this. I wrote this out of the, one of the books that we've got in the church for a reference Bible or a reference dictionary. Christian apologetics does not refer to science, but it refers to the art of defending or explaining the Christian faith to a non-believer. Some of you in here this morning are going to be like, I already knew this and I know more, because I can't cover uh, even, I can't even, I can't even make a blip on the screen of what I'm going to share this morning in regards to the accuracy of scripture and history and what we look at. This, and there'll be a group of you in here this morning as well that are eager to learn these things, that love to share your faith, that love to talk to people about these things. And there'll be other people in this room, and I fall in all three of these categories probably. There'll be other people in this room that I don't need to know this. By faith, I know this book is true. I don't need to have, I don't need to defend God's word. I don't need to know how to defend God's word. That's some of you are going to think that as well because you just have the faith to know that it's true. Someone comes up and asks you, how do you know? I know because I believe. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let me challenge you with a thought. 1 Peter 3.15 says, you better be ready. Sanctify the Lord. Set him apart in your heart and be ready to give a defense for the, or give a reason for the hope that lies within you. That's apologetics. So we do need to be able to defend our faith, especially in today's world, you guys. 
It is so critical that we have confidence that we can point to in Scripture to know that we know that the Bible is true, it's accurate, it's helpful, it's God's Word to us. So this morning I want to run through those three things. The first thing I want to do is I want to give you just a little bit, a few thoughts to begin with here. The proof and how we receive the Bible is what we'll look at first. But one of the questions I want to look at is this. Why do you think this book is such a heartache for people? Think about all the books that have been written throughout history. No book has ever been challenged to be accurate and true as much as the Bible. Nobody's ever questioned all throughout history. Nobody's tried to destroy other books, really, and get rid of other books. Why is this book such a heartache for people? And I really believe here's why. Because, see, we want to live our lives like we have authority over this book. It doesn't work that way, folks. This book has authority over my life. And that's the one thing I think really gives people heartache. Even believers sometimes fight with this idea that we are under the authority of Scripture. The Scripture holds authority over our lives. Why? Because this book is divinely given, divinely inspired, so we will be divinely judged by how we handle the things in this book. So if you wonder sometimes, why do people, why is this such an important thing? God does not need defended. You know that, right? God does not need us to defend him. God does not need us to defend the word that he's given us either. But it's up to us, and here's why we do this. Because we were once blind, but now we can see. And if you're in this room this morning and you question scripture, which I think a lot of people have that are even following God, we were once blind, now we can see it's our opportunity and our responsibility to share the good news with other people and to understand the flow of scripture, how it works, what the book is all about is important that we do that because God reveals through this book, God reveals his thoughts toward us, his plans for us, and his principles to live by. That's all found within scripture. And if we don't read it, do I need to finish that sentence? We're not going to understand it. We're not going to know it. We're not going to know. If we don't read this book, we're not going to really know the author. And the author is God, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So the Bible reveals all those things to us. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is, how did we receive the Bible? First, or 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the, the Bible is the inspired word of God. God breathed scripture. So in other words, the Bible is not merely words about God. It's not words about God. It's words given to us by God. It's God's word to us. It's his voice written down throughout history, written by humans, inspired by God. The Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts and the minds of the author of the, New the Old and the New Testament. Those authors, God moved about their hearts and minds. And I, th I, I explained this to the high school kids the best way I could. We kind of get stuck on that idea while well, the Holy Spirit moved and they wrote things down. And we look at that, a lot of people look at that like, well, how can that be? Listen, you guys, think about this for a second. This may be a horribly bad way to try to explain this. Has the Spirit of God ever spoke to your heart? Why should it shock us that God inspired people to write down his words? If we went around and wrote down everything God told us and he inspired us to touch our hearts with, it wouldn't be scripture, so to speak, but we'd have a stack of papers that high. But yet we walk around shocked that <gasps> God spoke to people and he wrote it down. God, I hope, is speaking to us right now through his Holy Spirit, yes? Yeah, we need that, don't we? So we should not be shocked that the Spirit of God spoke to the hearts and mind of people over history, and they pinned this accurately to become Scripture. A pastor once said it this way, what was in their head flowed through their hand and out of their pen. 
Don't make it any harder than that when it comes to Scripture. What was in their head flowed out of their hand and out of their pen. That's how this all works when you look at the Scriptures. Written over a span of 1,500 years, 40 different writers, 66 different books in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's, who, that's kind of some of the details about this Scripture. The Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, it's about the nation of Israel and God moving about his people. That's kind of the theme of the Old Testament, if you will. The New Testament tells us about the life and the teaching of Jesus and the church. So when you read these two sections, you read the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and you look at these things, understand this is what you're really reading. And again, I will encourage you, when you read the Bible, start with the introductions to the books because it will really help you understand what it's written for and why it's written and who it's written to. And the dates are important. And uh, we'll look at some of the, the, the locations uh, ge geographically this morning. It's, all that makes a difference, and it, it does help. Scripture is infallible. And the word infallible, infallible simply means this, incapable of error. That's all it means. The Bible is incapable of error. It's an infallible word from God. It is never wrong, and it's absolutely trustworthy and true. Do you believe it? Can you tell someone these things? Do you really believe that this is true in your hearts? To find out, you got to go study it. And another word that people will use, theologians will use, is the, is the word of God is inerrant. Also applied to Scripture means free from error in everything that it validates, in everything that it affirms, it is free from error. Well, yeah, but doesn't that mean somebody missed a period or changed the letter over there? Yeah. I mean, my goodness, it's been thousands of years. If, if the translators, the manuscript, as they transferred manuscripts, they missed a period, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. Yeah, but it's it, everything it affirms, it is free from error. It talks about the gospel. It talks about man, God, man, sin, salvation. It talks about all those things, and it is free from error. Simply put this way is this. Simply put, the Bible never fails. When held up to the test of time, the Bible has never failed, ever, ever, ever. We can have confidence in this. We can have confidence this book that we read are the very words of God inspired to us by God, written down by men over centuries, 1,500 years. So the second thing I want to look at this morning, this point will be a little bit longer. I'm going to stay here for a while longer on this one. How do we know the Bible is trustworthy and true? People will come up to you, right? Well, how do you know the Bible's true? Right? You ever had that? Well, how do you know the Bible's true? It was written down by men. They get all arrogant and a little bit of an edge to them, right? Well, get an edge back. Say, how do you know it's not true? Hello? Well, how do you know the Bible's true? Well, how do you know it's not true? Prove to me that it's not true. Because the, the, the God who hung the stars in the sky, his spirit's touched my life. He's changed me. I'm a new creation. I don't need to look at this to say, well, I wonder if what God did is true, and I wonder what the Bible says. Listen, I remember when I gave my life to Christ and I started reading Scripture after I was saved. I thank God every time I opened up the book that I was saved because I, I, Scripture made it very clear to me where a Dan Canoose was headed to that didn't know Christ. And it was to the pit of hell, and there was a special place that I had designed and built for myself there. So do I need to know the Bible's true? Do I need to know apologetics? Yes, it's very important that we know these things, but I don't need someone to come up and challenge me whether the Bible's true or not. Challenge them right back. What did Jesus do in Scripture? When someone asked him a question, what's the first thing he did? Most of the time he asked a question back, didn't he? So I don't need to prove to someone who's got a sarcastic edge. If someone comes up to me that's genuine and says, how do you know the Bible's true? I want to have that conversation with them. 
I'll talk to them. I'll walk through things with them. Listen, and you've got to know there's, there's got to, it's got to be okay with everyone to say, I don't know. Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 55. My ways are higher than your ways, God says. I'm okay with that. And there are things in Scripture that I will never understand and that I don't know, and that's okay. That doesn't make you a bad Christian. Don't wait until you think you know everything to go share your faith with someone. It doesn't work that way. Share your faith like Paul did on the road to Damascus. I was riding on the road to Damascus, and I bumped into this guy named Jesus, and I've never been the same. How's that for telling people about the Lord? Try that. It worked for Paul. It'll probably work for us. But I want to look at two things. I want to look at two different sections here. Three, really, when I get into it. I want to look at the internal evidence or proof. Remember, this is about proof. I want to look at the internal evidence or proof, and I want to look at the external evidence or proof. So the first thing I want to do to show us that the Bible is true and trustworthy is the internal evidence. And this really means this, things within the Bible that testify of its divine origin. And divine means just simply that it comes from God. We talked about this last week when we, when we looked at, did Jesus claim to be God? And we went through the other religions in the world. We looked through, we looked at atheism, we looked at Muslims, we looked at Mormons, we looked at Jews. How do they view Jesus? Because some people will tell you, well, it's all about Jesus, right? Really? If every religion in the world could just say it's all about Jesus, there's different views of Jesus within other religions. A divine origin is Jesus is God. That's divinity. He shows his divinity through the Son being the Son of God. And we proved that out last week in the high school room. But things within the Bible that testify of its divine origin are this, first and foremost, unity. If you read the Bible, guys, there is so much unity within the Scripture. Although there are 66 different books, three different continents, three different languages, 40 different writers, 1,500 years it's got to be divine, doesn't it, for there to be any unity in this thing at all? You think about the people that wrote the Bible. Kings, fishermen, priests, government officials, farmers, shepherds, and doctors. And out of all this diversity, and I, this really struck me on this one, out of all this diversity, there's unity. The world today celebrates diversity, doesn't it? Oh, there's so much diversity. But there is no unity, is there? Am I the only one? You look at the scripture, 1,500 years, three different continents, three, three different languages, 40 different writers from all backgrounds and, and locations, and there's unity in that one vein, that one thread that runs through scripture is about who? Christ. You guys, that's where we find our unity. As a Christian church, we all come in here on a Sunday morning from different places, different personalities, different backgrounds, different careers, different vocations, different family circumstances, but we all have what? We come here as a what? A family unit, don't we? We're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? This is what we're talking about. Dovey told me this, shared this in the high school room, I think here a week or so ago. Dovey told me that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Little Dovey that's about that tall, looked at me one day and she says, you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because there's unity. That's how this thing works. That's divine proof that God moved in the hearts of people to create this thing that we read and talk about all the time. There's unity within there because there's Christ within there. If you're not in the family of Christ, I don't care how much diversity there is there's no unity you guys and that's why you see the world being separated and going so many different directions right now and when you talk to people and they go i don't understand today let me tell you you can say i know what it is be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you because we have we have diversity within the christian church but we have unity 
And that unity is wrapped around our Savior. And that's where you want to point people when you talk to them about Scripture. Ultimately, the Bible, the unity in the Bible is due, due to this fact. You know what it is? There's one author to this book. There's one author to this book. And it's not Paul, and it's not Peter, it's not Jonah, it's not David, it's God. God moved, you guys, and that's where you see this unity because he's the author. The second internal evidence is prophecy. And prophecy in this definition is this, a message from God communicated to man, through man, to man. That's prophecy. A message that God wants to get to us communicated to a man that went through a man, to a man. That's prophecy. When you look at it, uh, Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried about along and along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God moved about men, spoke to them, and they told other people, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all these other prophets in the Bible, you guys, they were inspired. That was not their thoughts that they wrote down and gave us. This is all about speaking from on God's behalf from God. Prophets account for a prophecy accounts for a large portion of the Bible and is an extremely detailed. So if you, for me personally, this is me. If I ever want to show that the Bible is true and accurate, I point to prophecy because it's fulfilled prophecy that I point to. It's extremely detailed in Scripture, prophecy is. We got to understand that. I'll give you a couple examples. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 2, he said that he talked about how the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. This was before he died, right around when he was 30 years old. 40 years before this ever happened, Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. Guess what? 40 years later, in 70 AD, exactly like he said, guess what happened? Not like this. We all know the temple was destroyed, right? We know these things. Here's some messianic prophecies for you, which literally means this. Prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah wrote down about Jesus being born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 says, therefore, this, you guys know this. I'm just going to remind you, okay? Most of you in this room know this. 700 years before Christ was born of a virgin, Mary 700 years this was penned in the Bible. Isaiah wrote this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 700 years. Want another one? Very simple ones. You guys all know these for the most part. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, talks about how Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Now think about this for a second. Did Jesus live in Bethlehem? Or did his parents live in Bethlehem? Where did they live? Nazareth, right? Because of the census, God moved. And because of the census, Joseph and Mary ended up where? Bethlehem. 700 years before this happened. Jesus had absolutely no control over this whatsoever. Micah writes how Jesus will be born. The Savior, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here's another one. David, a thousand years before crucifixion was ever a thing. In Psalm 22, David referred to it this way. For, my, for dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked have closed in on me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before crucifixion was ever a thing, David wrote about it. 
and whose feet were whose hands and feet were pierced. Do you think he had any control over that? How do we Jesus is God. This scripture is true. These prophecies you guys should should give us all the confidence that we need that what we hold in our hand for over thousands of years now is accurate and it's true. The first guy that was crucified, I think, in, in history, the first record uh, um, historically, I think, was like 497 B.C. They find the man that was crucified had hands in his, in his, in his, in his wrists and his feet, had holes in him. So we know these things are true. The fact that prophecy is in the Bible is one of the things that makes it unique of any other scripture in the world. All the other isms in the world, nobody goes to predictive prophecy like the Bible does. Nobody. I don't care what the book is. They do not do it, and it has not been fulfilled. There's a lot of prophecies in scripture that have not been fulfilled yet. We're all hearing about everybody talk about those with the end times events, right? We know that Isaiah or uh, Ezekiel 38 war, all these different things that people are talking about, looking at the book of Revelation, all these things that are yet to come, we can have confidence. When our pastor taught us on the book of Revelation, the one thing I really appreciated that he said in there was this, we may not be absolutely sure of the timeline, but we can be absolutely sure it's going to happen because prophecy has been fulfilled and prophecy will continue to be fulfilled until the Lord returns. So we have, we have confidence in that. The other thing I want to look at is ex external evidence for a couple minutes. Things outside the Bible that testify to its divine origin. It's historistory, if you will. That's really what we're talking about here. Jesus says it this way. The writings, the writings in the Bible have been proven to be true and accurate, by the way, by archaeological finds and digs. Over the years, they've been, the Bible has never, there's never been an archaeological dig that has proven the Bible wrong. Every time it happens, the Bible has been proven right. And correct, I'll give you a couple examples. Jesus said it this way before I move on to the examples. Jesus says this, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. And it struck me because even as they're digging and the stones are telling the story of history and explaining the story of the Bible accurately and confirming it and validating it, the stones are crying out even though people deny it. The Dead Sea Scrolls, many of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 in Qumran, which is about 20 miles, uh, if I remember right, east of Jerusalem, kind of on the northwest shore of the, of the Dead Sea, up in the hill there. Little Bedouin boy, little sheep herder boy, was going along, and he got a, had a goat get away from him, the story goes. And he took a rock, and he threw a rock up in a cave, and when he threw it up in the cave, everything changed because he heard pottery break. And, of course, being a little boy, can you see yourself, guys? Well, what was that? And up into the caves he goes. And they found thousands of manuscripts that had been written from 3rd century B.C. to 68 A.D. They found thousands of manuscripts in those caves that were in good shape and always they were leather and papyrus is what they were written on. Tens of thousands of fragments dating back to those centuries. The scrolls were in excellent conditions and God had hidden those things for 2,000 years. But all of a sudden they were found. And all they did was validate the Old Testament. We know that that Old Testament that we hold in our hands because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Old Testament manuscripts are accurate and they're true because even up to date, what they had found up to that date, the Dead Sea Scrolls validated what it was. They found books, they found record or manuscript or pieces of each book in the Bible except for the book of Esther in the Old Testament. That was the only book they didn't find anything out of. Isaiah was basically completely intact. The book of Isaiah in these caves that had been hidden for 2,000 years 
And all of a sudden, God revealed them in 1947. And if you look back at history, I think there's a reason why it was that time when God did it when it comes to the Jewish nation. The findings of these manuscripts will give us confidence. And the only thing that was off was a few little, uh, probably spelling errors more than anything. The context of what the scripture said was intact, and there was nothing missing. So maybe a period here or a letter there, maybe something was changed over the years by people who manuscripted, who copied manuscripts, but we have confidence knowing that that is true. These findings are interesting from an educational perspective, yes, but we don't need them to prove God, right? We don't need them to prove that the Bible is true, but they, they <clears throat> empower us, don't they? And it validates, again, Scripture that it is true and it's accurate. The second external evidence is the Bible stories of real historical people in real historical places. One of my desires is to go to Jerusalem. I would love to go over to Israel and just see where the Lord and Paul and all the disciples walked. Many of you have done that already, and I've been told this. If you do this, you will never read the Bible the same because everything comes to life because you're trotting on the same ground that those people walked on that we hear about and read about in Scripture. Josephus even wrote, a lot of people will deny that Christ even lived on the earth, but Josephus, Josephus, a historian, wrote about the resurrection. He writes about the crucifixion and he writes about the resurrection. So that's someone outside of the Bible that gives evidence to validate what's inside the Bible again. The third one, and another piece of external evidence when it comes to stories, and I found this one really interesting. The Hittite nation found in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 6, for a long time, there was no evidence of any Hittites anywhere. But in 1897, I think if I've got my year right, there was some evidence found archaeologically that showed that the Hittite nation actually existed. And by the 20th century, they had dug up enough evidence that what once was denied the Hittites, they were trying to prove the Bible inaccurate. They were trying to like crazy to say the Hittite nation, we've never found anything about them. By the 20th century, there was enough evidence where there's no question any longer that the Hittite nation that was spoken about in 2 second, in, in, uh, Kings chapter 7, uh, verse 6, they found enough evidence, now they don't question it any longer. And again, the Bible has never been proven wrong. It's always been proven correct and accurate. And the third thing is this, the, the third external, external evidence is this, is this part here, the indestructibility of Scripture. In 303, Roman Emperor Roman, Roman Emperor Diocletian sent out an edict all around Rome to destroy every scripture writing of Christians. Communists have tried to destroy it. Atheists are trying to destroy it. In today's world, do you feel the pressure that the Bible is going to be attacked again, over and over again, and try to be made not true and not effective? And I think, I believe for me personally, I think the Bible not long from now will be deemed hate speech. I really do. And it will be, they will try to do what they've done to so many people in this world, and it's cancel culture, and they won't be able to do it. The Bible is indestructible. They have tried for years to get rid of it, and it has not happened. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 13, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never. Never means what? Never. Ever. Pass away. So what does that give us? Okay, Dan, so that gives us confidence, doesn't it? That gives us confidence that we know that this Bible, no matter what they try to do to it through, through the 40s, through today's world, through 303 when Diocletian tried to get rid of it, can't get rid of it. Why? Because God's overseeing it. God's protecting it. 
and all that he does. And how do we know the Bible's accurate? I want to get through this one real quick. How do we know the Bible's accurate? The Old Testament, here's how I know the Bible's accurate. You ready? Very simple this. Jesus validated and quoted it. If Jesus Christ quotes the Old Testament, why should I, why should I question whether it's accurate or not? He quoted from three quarters of the book of the books in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted from those. So right there, I don't need to go any deeper for me personally. If Christ quoted it, it's got to be accurate. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. The New Testament is even more, we're more certain the New Testament has the accuracy. It was written, the New Testament, between A.D. 45 and A.D. 90, okay? I want to make sure I get through this because this is such a big deal. You're going to think, what's the big deal? But watch this. It was written between A.D. 45 and A.D. 90 is when it's shown that the, Old, or the New Testament was written. Some fragments of Greek Testament even existed back to 120 A.D. and to 150 A.D. So it was written in 45 to 90, they have record of manuscripts clear back to 120 to 150 AD. You might say that's about, what, 40, 40, 50 years difference between the writings and the manuscripts that they found, right? Watch this. Now, this is why this is important, because today there are over 5,000 manuscripts plus of the New Testament. 5,000. Now, watch this. Think about why do we question the Bible? I'm going to use two different examples. Plato's writings. Everybody knows Plato, right? Everybody knows. Does anybody doubt that Plato lived? Think about this. Has anybody ever said, well, I'm not sure that Plato even walked the earth? Really? Has anybody ever had that thought? How about Caesar? Has anybody ever said, well, yeah, but prove to me that Caesar lived. History shows that these guys were around, right? But watch this. Plato's writings were in 427 to 347 B.C., the earliest manuscripts they found were around 900 A.D. That's 1,200 years after the writings or the, the most recent manuscripts that they have. Now, remember the Bible? 30 to 40 years, and they have manuscripts showing. 30 to 40 years after the events happened. 1,200 years after Plato's writings. And remember, there's 5,000-plus manuscripts of the New Testament. Guess how many there are of Plato's writings? Seven. <laughs> and we question the Bible. As a society. Watch Caesar. I'll give you one more and then I got to quit. Caesar, 100 to 44 BC was his writings. The earliest manuscripts are getting around 900 AD. That is 1,000 years time span between his writings and manuscripted records that they have of Caesar's writings. And you know how many copies there are? Remember, 5,000 plus of the New Testament, 10 of Caesar's. And there's not a historian on the planet, the secular, that will question Plato or Caesar's writings. They won't even think about it. We can find confidence in the scripture. We can find confidence that God gave us this book and internally and externally validated situations and issues that validate scripture, you guys. We have, I want you guys to walk out of here this morning knowing that you can have confidence in the scripture. I know this is not usually the way I preach or the way I talk about things. This is probably more of a teaching thing than it is anything, but I want you guys to understand Scripture is real and is validated through a bunch of different ways. Now, I want to wrap it up in the next few minutes with this. How do we know the Bible, or how does the Bible help us? This is what I want to lean into now. How does the Bible help us? We looked at how we got it. We looked at how we know it's trustworthy and true. Now, what's it mean to us? What difference does it make to me? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and useful uh, to teach us what is true and makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we, when we are wrong and teaches us what to do that is right so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So the Bible is going to tell you what's right and wrong, and it's going to equip you to go out and be a good Christian. And for every good work, which means every work that we do for God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, the word of God is alive and active, and I believe if we get this, it's true. You ever read the Bible one time, and now all of a sudden something else is going on in your life, and you're reading the Bible again, and it comes off at you like a 3D, like a 3D figure? Like You're like, I've never, I've never noticed that before. And then throughout your day, you're like, you know why God raised that off the page to you? Because throughout the day, that made a difference to you in that day, didn't it? Every one of us who are Christians have had that experience. It's alive and active, and it says it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's why we don't like it. Because when I read it, it convicts me. Because when I'm reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God is poking me going, are you okay? Or do you need to change direction and adjust course a little bit? And it's up to us to be obedient when he does. I believe the Bible holds the answers to the toughest questions in life. You'll work with people, you'll have family members that don't know certain things in their life. And the Bible always points to the answers in this, on this side of heaven and even that side of heaven. Where do I come from? Where do I come from? We know on the sixth day, we know where we come from, don't we? God formed Adam out of, the, out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of lives into him, didn't he? That's where we come from. We know as human beings, it's not from a big bang. I did not come from an amoeba, and I did not descend from a monkey. I don't know. Those things aren't true. They're made up. You can look at history. All that stuff is so fabricated. But we know by faith what Genesis 127 says. Why am I here? Matthew 5, 16 tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why am I here? Simply put, to bring glory to God. Easy enough, if I'm not bringing glory to God, what do I do? I adjust course and I start to live by his grace, bringing him glory. Matthew 5, 16 says so. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you guys know this one, right? Do it to the glory of God. I don't know why I'm here. I don't understand it. We do. And if you forget, Scripture will remind you. Where, why is there evil in the world? Ever had that conversation with someone? Why is there evil in the world? Why would a good God allow these things to happen? Well, because a good God will not thwart our free will. Simply put, you can behave however you want. God will help you live a Christian life. He will allow you to torture yourself as a non-Christian, but he will never thwart your free will when it comes to a relationship with him. And why is there evil in the world? Because of Genesis 3. Because of the fall. We know why, don't we? So when we look at the world, we should know what Genesis 6 says. The intent of a man's heart is only evil what? All the time. Which should we be shocked? Honestly, you guys, should we be shocked when we look at the landscape of the land today? We shouldn't be. We should know exactly why it is the way it is. How can I have peace? I don't have any peace in my life. Peace is not found in a circumstance or situation. We all know that. Peace is found in a person. Jesus, Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give peace as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is what the Bible helps us with. And see, now that we know where we got it and that it's trustworthy, I know it's true. I know I can have peace in Christ. Jesus also said this, I have said these things to you that you may have peace in the world, but you will have tribulation. Why do bad things happen? Because God allows us to go through them for our benefit and our relationship with him. 
He says, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome. Do you get it? Get confidence in these things, you guys. I know life's hard, but Jesus has overcome, and he's already defeated the devil. We live from victory, not for victory when we live our lives. What happens to me when I die? One of two destinations. Hebrews 9.27 says this, and it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And you've got to ask yourself, as C.S. Lewis did, is it going to be your will or God's will on this side of heaven? Because if it's your will on this side of heaven, God's going to say, great, your will for eternity. Be gone from me, for I never knew you. It's very simple. God, not, God doesn't just tell us how to get to heaven. He tells us how to stay out of hell. So you've got to understand these things and, and, and what happens to me when I die. And the Lord makes it very clear. Additional benefits is this, and I'll close with this. The Bible was given to us as a guide. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's a guide for us. The Bible helps me know who Jesus is better. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think you've been, they, they will give you eternal life. But they reveal me. It teaches me what, who Jesus is and what it's all about. It teaches me, the, it reveals to me the truth of God. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. John 7, 17, 17. The Bible tells me how to stay away from sin and how not to be a slave to it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Have you? Have you hidden your, his word in your heart that you might not sin against him? Because if you haven't, that's why you're sinning. Because you're not walking with him. And you got caught up in a direction that has nothing to do with him, you guys. The Bible teaches me how to get to heaven. John 3, 16. You guys all know it. For God so loved you. Personalize it for a second. For God so loved you that he sent his only son. That if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. We've got to personalize scripture. And it says in John 3, 3, you must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I want you guys to know the world needs Christians that are willing to stand on this truth. More today than ever, you guys, we need believers that know that this is true, that have confidence and will stand on Christ's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning. This Bible that we hold in our hands, God is not going to make you believe, he's not going to make you read, and he's not going to make you follow. You have a free will. But I pray that this morning helps you just a little bit in the area of confidence. And when somebody comes up to you and asks you, why are you, how can you have so much peace in this situation? You can say, because peace doesn't come from my situation. It comes from my Savior. I want you guys to have that kind of confidence when you walk out of the room this morning. Because more than ever, the world needs Christians that will stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ and following the truth of this scripture that is true. Inspired by God proven internally and externally to be true, and it helps us to live a godly life. It teaches us to do everything that is right and teaches us what is wrong to equip us to do what? To go do good works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your word. And I have learned so much through putting this together this morning for everyone that can hear my voice. 
I've learned so much and so much more confidence and so much more confirmation to my own heart. Lord, I just pray that you would find this, what I offered this morning to you, that it would be worthy of you sharing and touching people's hearts with, <clears throat> that your Holy Spirit would be the one at work here this morning and that we would walk out of this place, Lord, with, with a longer stride in our step because we have confidence in what we hold in our hand, the word from you given to us to show us the way to get back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed, everyone. Have a great day.